Well, the book of Romans, is, as you know, it, it's a letter written to a church in Rome 2,000 years ago, and the church was essentially divided, right? There were some Gentiles there, and there were some Jews. And as we've read the letter, you begin to see it's God's plan for the world and how God was working in the world. But as the letter gets written, and they're reading it out loud, and they're studying it, and they're understanding it, it starts to feel like Paul might be a little bit anti-Jewish. He might have some sense that God is done with the Jews and he's moving on. And so that begins to set up this tension that exists in the church. And that's why as you read the book of Romans, you start feeling this tension. So let me see if I can say the tension. The tension is a little bit like this. The Jews see the church. This new community that Jesus said he was going to build the Jews see it as a threat to Judaism. On the other side of the tension, the church is looking at the Jews and they're saying, well, they failed. They're, they're done because of their unbelief. And so it has this tension building in the church. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, well, Pastor Tom, that sounds good, but what does that have to do with us today? Why is that significant? What we're going to begin to see is that what God revealed to them, what God wanted to speak into that church, plays into exactly what we need in the 21st century. The issues that we're facing as a nation that are dividing us, Christians as they struggle in their faith journey, many of them, as you know, are abandoning the faith. This chapter that we're in, chapter 9, is going to drive us to a place where we can be rock solid in our walk with Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible this morning, let me encourage you to open with me to Romans. As you're turning there, let me just say this morning, we're going to be doing some texting. Now those that are newer to Fox Valley, uh, you may not have experienced this. So what this means is that you're going to need your cell phone. And if there's something that is said in the message, maybe it, it spurs a thought, a question, or I say something, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? And you want clarification, just text that question in. And at the end, we'll be going ahead and answering the questions that you text in. So I want to encourage you to participate in this. I do want to say you will need to be thinking deeply this morning. Uh, it's going to take us to some questions that are hard in chapter 9. So Romans chapter 9, if you're able to stand, can I invite you to stand? I want to read just a couple verses here, verses 14 to 18. This is what God wrote through the Apostle Paul. It says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, 
that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Father, these are amazing words. Words that you meant to stir our affections. Words that you meant to cause us to think. Words that you meant to reveal something about yourself. And words that you meant to create greater wonder in our souls. So God, we're asking for your spirit this morning to move in a powerful way. Don't let us leave the way we came in. This passage... These verses have the power to shape not only our minds, but our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. And of course, as as we look at this this morning, the the first question that we get in in verse 14, Paul just lays it out, right? Is God unjust? Now, you got to remember where that question is coming from because as we looked last week, in verse 13, it ends with God saying, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Remember, that, that, that's how it all unfolded, right? So God is saying, I'm sovereignly moving in this world. I'm deciding where things are going. I'm making these choices. And Jacob I loved. And what's powerful about that is it's, it's played into a historical setting. Is that Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. And then finally they get into their older age. And God says, I'm not choosing Ishmael, the one that... Abraham had with Hagar, he waits until a miracle upon miracle can take place, and Isaac is born, and he says, Isaac is the heir. And then he moves on, and Rebekah and Isaac are later in life, not as old as Abraham and Sarah, but they eventually conceive, they have twins, and the older one, it says, will serve the younger one. And so uh, we get to this place where God says, Jacob, I love. Esau, I hated. And that just stirs in us, as it did in the first century, feelings of, is God just? Is God that sovereign that He chooses one person over another person? That He picks Jacob, but He turns away from Esau? Right? All of a sudden, all of us, it begins to stir in our hearts like, God, are you unjust? And so we get the question just laid out there. And so what we begin to see is the Apostle Paul says, never, (laughs) never, right? Not at all. God, of course, is not unjust. And there's no way for God to be unjust. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now, at first probably like you, you you read this and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, we're talking about justice. Why doesn't he answer it? Or why does he answer it the way he does? Why doesn't he say something with the word justice in it? And so what he begins to do is push us to a place. We ask the question about justice when it comes to salvation. Because that's what they're talking about. That's the context. God is delivering his people. 
and he's going to deliver them through Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, not Esau, and then, of course, eventually the Messiah comes through this, this, this line because of the 12 tribes of, of Jacob. And so what we begin to see is God is answering the question, but not the way we want it answered. God is pushing them down a path into mercy. This area of mercy becomes so, so significant because as God sovereignly works out His plan in detail, He is not conditioned. He is not pulled. He is not pressed by anyone or anything outside of Himself. What He wants you and me to know, as He wanted the readers in the first century to know, is that He is absolutely sovereign and he gives those examples historical examples so that we could walk away with that so as we think about this this morning let's just read a little bit more it says here therefore god has mercy on whom let me get the slide up here therefore god has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden now this is all set in a historical context when he quotes what happens in uh, Exodus, it's Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, the first part of that, is the nation of Israel had rebelled. God and Moses are talking, having serious fellowship over what God wants to do. And then something happens. Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. But God, in responding to Moses, says, I'll show you my goodness. Another way to look at it is God wants Moses to understand his mercy. He wants him to understand his very goodness. And so as we think about what's happening here, even with Pharaoh, when they were coming out of Egypt, Pharaoh's heart was already hard. So when it says God is hardening their hearts, God is is only doing what those folks already wanted. In this case, Pharaoh wanted. His heart was already hard towards God and the things of God. So, as we think about it, the stunning truth or the absolute wonder is not that some people are saved and not others, but that any are saved at all. Because what we begin to think is that we are worthy of salvation. That somehow we deserve it. And remember all the way back in chapter 3, God lays out that we have all rebelled against God. And that all of us deserve the very wrath of God. But we don't like to think of it that way. We like to think of, hey, I'm not that bad. God owes me this one. And what we're getting here is the record set that God owes us nothing. I just want to pause right there. That's a shocking truth. God wants you and me to understand who He is. He's not some genie in a bottle. 
He's not some grandfather up in heaven. I mean, like if I was God, I'm telling you as a grandfather, my grandkids come to me, they ask me for anything. Oh, sure, sure, let's not even worry about what mom and dad wants. Yeah, we'll take care of that. More candy? Yeah, yeah, let's, right? God's not like that. We, we, we get these notions about God, and God is just laying it out right here. Nobody controls me or what I want to do. Nobody. But what we do begin to see is that God is a God of mercy. And we need mercy. Remember what I said last week, we are saved by grace. You could just simply say, we are saved by mercy. Through faith, as we receive it, we see this all through the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple examples. Jesus was teaching the crowds, and the, and the crowds were just flocking to him. They were coming. There were thousands of them. You know what it says? After three days of them following him into the countryside, he looked at them, and it says, with compassion. With compassion. Now, his compassion is not void of action. What does he do? He feeds them. That's when he multiplies the fish and the loaves. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. But it's driven by the very mercy of Jesus. Or think of Jesus telling the story in Luke 18. It's one of my favorites. Is two people, two men, they come walking into the temple. And the one man is a Pharisee. And the other man is a sinner, a tax collector. The one man, the Pharisee, looks up to heaven. He says, God, I'm so glad I'm not like this dude next to me. <laughs> look at me, Jesus. Or look at me, God. He says, I, I, I give all this money. I serve in this way. I come to the temple. God translated, you owe me. How many of us secretly hold those thoughts? When something doesn't go our way. When something doesn't move in the way we think it should go. And can we just be honest with each other? Life is hard. A lot of pain. If we took and tried to weigh the amount of pain in this room right now, I mean like the scale would just bust. And when we're in pain, we begin to think, God, you owe me. You need to do this. And God will have none of it. So the other guy in the temple is a sinner. Tax collector. He won't even look to heaven. It says he starts beating his breast. And you know what he says? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. He knows God owes him nothing. He knows that he's a wreck. He knows that he's a hot mess. But do we? I see more and more just how much of a hot mess I really am. I'm fickle at times. My life can be crazy. My thoughts can be jumbled. Things can get confusing. Do I just cry out for the mercy of the Lord? Remember Jesus telling the story of the prodigal son and the father as the sun is returning, 
What does it say about the father? He sees his son a far way off. And what does it say? The father was filled with compassion. That's the mercy I'm talking about. So in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. So when they say, is God unjust? God is essentially saying, you got the wrong question. The real question is, is God merciful? And then he just lays it out over and over that God will be compassionate to whom he wants to be compassionate. Now, I know I've just said a lot. (laughs) Texting is important. If I've said something and you're like, whoa, unpack that a little bit more, uh, text that in at this point. It'll be really, really helpful. Because what we want to see is that we have sinned. We have rebelled. We have moved against God. We get this mindset that God owes us And it's only God's mercy that any of us come into this relationship with Him. And it's what God is doing. But the passage isn't over, so let's dig in a little bit deeper. Verse 19, let's read it together. Follow along as I read. It says this, One of you will say to me then, Well, why does God still blame us? In other words, if it's God who chooses, and God is so sovereign, and God is in control, why does God blame us? That's a good question. For who is able to resist his will? It's his will. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show the wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? What if God did that? What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy whom He prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom He also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Jews, or Gentiles. As He says in Hosea, I will call them My people who are not My people, and I will call her My loved one who is not My loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not My people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking us deeper into this question of about blaming God. And so the question, let's just get it out in front of us. What does God, why does God still blame us? Who's able to resist his will, he says. Is it fair, let me put it in the vernacular, is it fair that God holds us accountable if he makes all the decisions? Is it fair that He holds us accountable? And God's answer to that question is, do you forget who is God 
and who is not. We don't like that response. God is just laying it out. Let me tell you who I am. And then he uses a very simple illustration, doesn't he? So let me pull up this verse here. He says, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What is he saying? He's saying, does the piece of art have the right to tell the artist what to do? Does the canvas get to tell the painter, you got to paint this now? Simple illustration. And he's saying, no, the potter gets to decide. The painter gets to decide. And of course, that does not sit well with us. So then he goes on and says, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? In other words, what if he is leading this earth and all of his plans are getting executed so that we'll be in awe of who he is? I want to say it a little differently. Even if we don't understand even if we don't agree, what is happening in this passage is that we're being told that God's character is good, it's wise, and He's powerful. And He's going to operate in consistency with who He is. Why? To display just how great and good and powerful he is so that we would be in awe of him now as we reflect on this we get questions and we get uncomfortable and god has chosen not to answer every question that we get out of this passage but we cannot push out the thrust of what is being said because I think all of it just a natural reading we begin to see that God is the potter and he gets to decide what to do with the clay he is the painter that gets to decide what brushstrokes he's gonna put on the canvas he is the musician that gets to pick the notes that he wants to play what we need to know in our pain in our suffering in the hardship of life that this God we worship is good. And that takes faith. I may not like what He's brought into my life. I may resist it. I may kick against it. So it becomes a fight of faith that this God is good. Now how do some people try to get rid of it? They try to talk about, well, maybe God's not powerful enough, so he can't stop that stuff from coming into my life. And God says, there is no one outside of me. That's the whole point of I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. There is no one in control of me. I am sovereign over everything. And so it comes down to, do I believe he's good? Do I believe he's all-powerful? Well, then some people will say, yeah, 
Pastor Tom, I know that he's good. I know that he's all-powerful. But you know what really causes me to scratch my head? I don't think God really knows what he's doing. He's not wise. What God wants us to know is he's all three. He's good. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever needs to be done. And he knows exactly what needs to be done. So it becomes a fight of faith. And what he doesn't want any of us to walk out of here thinking is that there's something or someone that's more powerful or more control in control than he. So what is the problem in the human condition? Jesus laid this out in John chapter 3. Jesus said this, the real problem is that women and men love darkness. It's not that they can't choose God. They don't want to choose God. Why? Because they love darkness. That's what Jesus taught in John chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. The light is Jesus Christ. The light is the Bible. The light is the truth of God. He says light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not. It's not that they can't. It's they won't. They choose against God and their hearts get hardened in the midst of all this. It's a very dangerous thing to be exposed to the truth of God, the light of God's Word, and turn away from it. Your heart will grow increasingly more difficult or more hardened towards God. So as we look at this, we begin to see the real problem. Well, let's hit the last section quickly. Verses 30. Let me read them. 30 to 33. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, See, I lay lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so the question we get is the conclusion. He's pulling it together, the threads. The threads of all that we've been saying and it comes down to an issue of faith. We receive a righteousness by faith. That's why we start out that we are rebellious in our natures. We have rejected God. That's the whole problem in this world. People have rejected God. You want to know the problem of the world? It's right here. We have rejected God and we need His righteousness. We receive it. And the Jews thought they could get a righteousness from the law. And Paul says no. There's only one way to get a righteousness, and that's the righteousness that comes by believing in Jesus Christ by a faith. So what has happened, as we said last week, let me bring it together, is that there were two Israels, right? There was the physical Israel, the descendants of Israel. They come through Abraham. He has a child, Isaac. He has Jacob that he chooses. They are the 12 tribes. Those are all the physical descendants. 
but not all of them believed. We see rebellion throughout the, old, the entire Old Testament. And we see it in our own hearts. Let's be honest. The world looks at the church and they say, why don't you all just be honest that you are a wreck too? Why are you so arrogant and think that you're all that when we're not? All we have is a claim on the revelation that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah and He gives us hope. So there's a spiritual Israel. So what does He say here? He says real clearly, He says, see, I lay in Zion a stone. And the stone that He laid is the stone of Jesus Christ and it causes people to stumble. Causes people to stumble. People reject what God has offered. And the one who believes in Him, right, will never be put to shame. It comes down to an issue of believing. Are we going to believe what God says about Himself? So let me just bring up a couple more verses here as we close this morning and go to texting. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What we believe and what we hold dear, dear, the world looks and says that's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 2, and it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I came without eloquence of human wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It boils down to God's plan, His own plan of salvation. So let me invite Pastor Brad up. Pastor Brad, could we welcome Pastor Brad up? So appreciate your worship leading and uh, your willingness to come back up. And uh, I think maybe a couple questions might have come in. So... For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Quite a bit of questions came in. You know, that's a great... Chapter 9 of Romans is so good. And you oh, did an man. awesome job. I mean, it's, well, it's challenging. It's got some challenging stuff to unpack. And we got quite a bit of text. So, man, I... Yeah, they just kind of came in in a flood, you know? Um, so let, let me just... Did he really one. say, and finally the gears start kicking in and like... So I, I'm just going to go into it, because there's no softballs with Romans 9, right? I, I got no softballs for you, Tom, so here we go. If, uh, if God hardens whom he wants to harden, does that affect free will? You're going to start with that one. Yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> I did it, it's done, it's out there. Uh, yeah, let me dive into that. Uh, you'll, if you're in, in anything that I've been preaching for the ba- uh, past couple decades, you know that I'm very, very resistant to the word free. Why do we think we have free will? Why wouldn't we just say we have a will, we can make choices, hmm. but they're consistent with our character. They're consistent with who we are. And what we have done is we have started pressing on the Bible questions that the Bible doesn't even open up. And so maybe we should just relax a little bit and say, yeah, we have choices. We can make decisions. But they're consistent with our character. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus says, hey, they love the darkness, they're making decisions based on their characters. 
They love the darkness. But we, Americans, get this notion of freedom that is false. And it's a notion that we can choose whatever we want, even if it's inconsistent with our character. And we can't. We choose consistent with our character. So I think we got to be careful of how we frame the question sure. even. But that's what they did too. They were framing the question and saying, well, why do you still blame us? And what God says, wait a minute. Yeah. You're missing the point. I know, and we can go down in this like, line of thinking. Is, does God, is he deciding what cereal I'm going to eat in the morning before I wake up, or right. do I have that choice? And I think some things God is like, I've laid out how to live. Don't be worried by some of these things. I don't know. Well, and I want to be careful. I, I, I don't want to deny that we are accountable to God for our choices. Totally. We are accountable. We will give an account, every one of us. Yeah, he, so he, there is these, this issue of choice. I'm not denying it. But when we use this word free, mm. here's, can, can I just take a moment? We are pitting our will against God's will with that question. And it's a watershed issue. You know what a watershed is. You've got a mountaintop and there's a peak. And if you choose that the will of the human being is sovereign, then we're saying God's will is not sovereign, and we are sovereign over God. And we're going to end up a far way away from where God is. Mm. Now, if God is sovereign, it's a watershed issue. God is in control of all things. Now, what that means for me is I can sleep at night. Why can I sleep? I don't have to worry about every choice I make. Mm -hmm. I know that God's at work and He's in control. When pain and suffering comes into my life, I may not understand how my choices work with God's will. I may not understand all that. But I know this. At the end of the day, He is sovereign over my choices. That's the watershed issue. And I think that's what Romans 9 is trying to bring us into. Mm -hmm. Say God is sovereign over these things. Totally. Over our will. And I mean, in this text we just read, it talks about God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But we also see when you read in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And it shows kind of culpability, responsibility, right? right? And so, let's cut the other way. When I say operate within your nature, I'm saying God operates within his nature too. Mm -hmm. God is good. So he's going to do good things. He's going to operate within his nature. He's not going to do evil or perpetrate evil against you. Now, how do you know that he's not going to choose to do evil? Because he's going to operate consistently with his nature, with who he is. That's a powerful truth. Okay, um, prayer. God moves when we pray, right? Amen. Somebody that's praying for salvation for an unbeliever, this text might cause someone to say, well... If God's already preordained it or not preordained it, what's, what's the point of prayer and how does that play a role in it? Mm -hmm. uh, you know that I stand strongly on the area of mystery. There are times and things that we do not understand, but I do know this. The Bible teaches that prayer genuinely, authentically, truly changes things. Mm -hmm. How that works as this universe operates with human will, I cannot begin to fathom. But that doesn't stop me from praying, and it does not stop me from praying for people that are far from him. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray like crazy. I'm going to intercede. I've got family members. I fight the fight of faith praying 
that they will bow their hearts to Jesus Christ. So just because I can hold that God is sovereign, it doesn't stop me from obeying the commands of Scripture. Pray for those that yes. are far from Him. Yeah. So I think that that's really, really important. I, I've, I've heard it said kind of humorously before, but all I know is the more people that I share Christ with, the more people seem to get elected, right? There's some <laughs> mystery of God using us to yep. do that, and that's a really cool reality. Okay, here's another one. This is kind of an interesting uh, take. If we are all different types of clay pots, right? Just going with, they're going with the illustration. Some for special things and others for common. How do we begin to understand that designated purpose? Whoa. You know, that's why I love this church. Yeah. <laughs> we, we love to think about these kinds of things. Well, we could take that question in a couple different ways, right? Certainly, as we look at it in context, what we're, we're sensing and knowing is that God has some that he has set his affections on in a very unique way, what we're calling election, what we're calling God's sovereignty, all these words that uh, are in Scripture that we should understand for knowledge. But if we move that question where I think the thrust of it is coming from a, a little bit into the practical, it, it seems like we need to try to discern God's leading and what he's doing in our lives. Well, how do we ever discern the leading and work of God? Well, always aligns with the word of God. So I had a guy a couple years ago, he said, God's telling me to leave my wife and run off with this other woman. And I said, that's not God's will for your life, right? Because the Bible's really clear. So the Bible always becomes godly people become really significant in giving us counsel. That's why we're here on Sunday morning. That's why we gather in our life groups so that we're sharpening each other. And then the third is the spirit. The spirit's at work. And so if I'm going out of bounds, the spirit begins to show in my heart, begins to convict me and I start feeling some, some guilt and I'm like, I gotta come back to the path. So those are the three ways. And I think when we get into the special use versus common, I don't want anyone to walk out of here thinking you are not mm. special. Mm -hmm. God has designed you and has a very unique purpose for you. And we need to walk in it. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created by Christ Jesus for him. So he has significant purpose the world can only create value they try to create purpose god grants it and he made each and every one of us with a very special purpose as we align with jesus christ so it's always a call back to jesus christ okay a couple questions like 10 just came in right now so we're sorry we're not <laughs> going to get to all of them but would love i mean i know both of us would love to interact with you on some of these things uh, outside of sunday morning but a couple came in on a thrust of about suffering and hardship mm. not so much on salvation but there's a connection and you brought it up in your message so one person said i know everyone has hardships and trials but there are some that have lost multiple babies family members major health issues and it makes it hard to explain to a non-christian why god allows one person to experience so much suffering so it's under the umbrella of god's sovereignty you know mm -hmm. it's not focusing specifically on salvation but a couple kind of came in that direction so something is happening in our world uh, that is, I think, really good and very, very significant. We used to use arguments for God and God's operations in the world 
that were very, very cognitive and very logical and rational. All of that is good. <laughs> of course, we don't want illogical, irrational arguments, yeah. right? But we acted like if we could convince someone mentally with their minds that it would solve all the problems. Sure. And it doesn't. So my position is we need to think hard. We need great women thinkers. We need great male thinkers that are really wrestling with these issues. But we need to realize God has chosen not to answer every question. And I think we do a disservice to people that are far from God or those that are outside the church to think that we can answer everything. We can't. I cannot understand the evil. Every week, every day, there is evil that I could never explain. Just last week or a week and a half ago, a woman jogging in Memphis brutally attacked, raped, and murdered, left her kids. How do you explain that kind of, right? You could just multiply this stuff over and over. And so I don't even try to answer that. Hmm. What I do know is what Romans 9 teaches us. God is in control. He is sovereign over it. Mm -hmm. He's a good God. He's all powerful. He's all wise. He knows what he's doing. And he's going to set the record straight. That's right. And I think for the world, let's put it on them for a moment. They don't have any answers either. Christians, I think, have the best answer. I may not have an answer now, but God will take care of it in the future. Mm. The world has no hope. That's all they're going to do is fight. And they're going to try to decide this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. But they have no objective way to do that. And what the Bible does is bring us to a place of some objective truth. So we can tell the world, you know what? I hurt with you too. Mm -hmm. I hurt That's good. and I don't have answers either. That's good. Hey, I know there's a lot more questions, but uh, we're going to need to wrap up. And uh, so maybe, Pastor Brad, could you, could you close us? Or? Yeah, I will. If you don't mind standing, let's stand. Let's just pray together. Let's close in, in prayer. And, and Father God, thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for your word. And even as Pastor Tom was just sharing right now, I thought of Second Peter 3, which is the Lord is not slow as some count slowness. Mm, that's God, good. you long for all to come to repentance. Would we not forget the heart of God that all people would be saved? He loves his children. He loves people, God. That is who you are. And so I just pray we would remember that and grab hold of that and walk out here, out of here this morning, knowing all these theological truths, but God also knowing you are a personal God whose plan is best for our life and you love us and you long for all to be saved, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness on us, God. We love you and we pray that we'd worship you, not just here this morning as we gather as your people, but as we go out into the world, we would tell and show the story of Jesus on fire for you and what you're doing in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. 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 Remember, Jesus changes everything.